Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of group publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to Holy Soup. We're coming to you today from uh, Holy Soup's new world headquarters here in Colorado new podcasting studio, so good to have you along. We're today with Dr. Josh Packard, professor of sociology at the University of Northern Colorado and co-director of the Social Research Lab. Josh is the author of numerous articles and books, including Church Refugees and uh, a special report called The Exodus of the Religious Duns. Well, let's begin there with the Duns, when uh, we talk about that group of people, just who are the Duns? So we really differentiate the Duns between um, other groups of people like the nuns, for example, um, to help understand this unique um, and distinct group within Christianity, and I think in, probably in religious groups all over, but of people who retain their faith, they still claim to be Christian, they still retain that identity, they just are done with the institutional expression of their faith, so they're not going to church anymore. Mm. Well, how significant is this done population? It's significant, and uh, I think it's really significant. It's it's a it's a I think it's a hallmark of things to come. But in, in particular, right now, it's the there are two things that that make them so important. One um, is the the type of person that is that is typically found among the duns is this really high capacity, super involved. Um, congregant who's really sort of the lifeblood and pulse of, of a lot of these churches before they before they walk out. And so they're, they're the ones really that are the movers and the shakers that are often leaving. Um, so on the sort of, you know, that on just that aspect of it, the, the subjective aspect of it, I think they're super important. Um, and on the more objective, quantifiable side, what, uh, the number we came up with was 30, a little over 30 million U.S. adults that fall into this category. Um and so it's both sizable and a really, you know, obviously very important. Hmm. And reading your research, this population of the Duns uh, are only about half of the total de-churched population, people who have walked away from the church. Yeah, so when people leave the church, they, you know, you can obviously take one of two routes. You can leave the church and leave your faith, um, or you can leave the church and retain your faith. Um, the, this group of people that we're, that we're mostly interested in that we call the Duns, these are the people, like I said, that have left the, that have left this sort of institutional church, but have absolutely retained their faith. And in some cases, uh, you know, in the, in the book, Church Refugees, we heard time and time again through the interviews that it made them, they made their faith stronger walking away. They were able mm. to be more involved in living out the story that, that they had, that they felt God wanted them to live. They felt called to, to live than they were able to within the church. Mm. In uh, your later study, the Exodus of the Religious Duns, you identified another group that uh, you've called the almost duns. Who are right. they? Well, so if we think about the, the 30 million U.S. adults, it's it's not like, you know, you might be thinking to yourself, like, how did I miss 30 million people walking out of the church? Well, it didn't happen, you know, um, in a year or, you know, over a short period of time. This is, this is for, you know, this is 30 million of all the U.S. adults. So the church would have probably barely noticed, um, in many cases, uh, this phenomenon as population continued to grow. Uh, in terms of their overall numbers, but the their sort of market share, the percentage of overall U.S. adults who are going to church, that they felt for sure. And what this, how we project forward is by looking at the group of people who are currently sitting in pews thinking, 
I don't think I'm going to be here much longer. Those are the ones we call the almost dones. Um, and we put that number at about seven and a half million. Uh, and this is based on a national survey um, with, uh, with that was that was designed to mirror the U.S. population. So that, but that means at any given time, there's seven and a half million people sitting in pews, thinking, "I'm I'm probably going to leave here at some point." And they're not, pro- you know, some of them might be wrong, some may stay for whatever reason. But regardless of how you want to, you know, whatever you think the margin of error is on that number, it's still big, and it's replicable. So just when those seven million people leave, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be replaced by another seven million who are also almost about to leave. Hmm. You know, one of the things I found fascinating about that particular population, the almost duns, you found some some differences in uh, their theological point of view, their view of the Bible, and what ramifications that might have for uh, the future. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So if, if we get back to our one of our original hypotheses in Church Refugees was that we were going to be seeing this sort of, we, we thought we were going to be seeing a bunch of theologically liberal people um, sort of not jiving with a, you know, uh, a conservative church message that is out of step with mainstream society on a, on a host of issues. And that ended up not necessarily being the case. Um, when we did the follow-up survey uh, for the exodus of the religious duns, what we found was not only are the current duns very theologically diverse, but the coming uh, wave, the almost duns, are actually more theologically conservative than, than anything else. Um, which suggests that you know this is a if if this is if the if the decline in church membership and attendance, which has primarily so far been felt by the denominations, although not exclusively felt by the denominations, this suggests that there's you know a coming wave that's about to hit for um, non-denominational, more evangelical um, kinds of church organizations as well. Those who uh, maybe have come from more conservative backgrounds and have looked at what's happened with the Duns uh, and have and have said, well, that that's just happening to right. the mainline churches. Right. What you're saying is that uh, whether or not that's true, what you see coming is an emphasis or or perhaps more bleeding coming from the evangelical side. Yeah, and I think I mean we the you know when. And a lot of that rhetoric has come from um, the from from the Southern Baptist Convention, and even their most recent reports about their attendance figures have been down, and they have corrected for some earlier estimates that were maybe a little bit too optimistic. Um, and I, I think that uh, the, this is not um, this this is coming for them, um, and it's not coming for them because they deserve it, or because they're they're you know somehow worse, or because there's something inherently bad about church. Um, or inherently bad about the way we do church right now. It's coming because it's a part of a larger trend in our society of people backing away from institutional um, expressions of their or or ways of organizing their social life. It's just, it's, it's the, it's, there's a dissatisfaction in our country um, broadly with using large institutions to sort of coordinate our lives. Um, It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that a megachurch model is a bad model or a denominational model is a bad model. It just means that the things that once were worked and were effective, um, now that society has changed and shifted, maybe they just aren't as effective anymore Hmm. um, in terms of getting people, you know, really the work of the church is, which is getting people in touch with God. Hmm. Uh, You know, there've been a number of denominational officials and uh, various denominations that have minimized your findings. Some have even even celebrated this so-called exodus of these millions. 
And some have even gone on record as saying this is actually good news for the church. Right. They, they've said things like good riddance. Uh, one, in fact, wrote that, uh, I'm quoting now, Americans whose Christianity was nominal in name only are casting aside the name. They are now aligning publicly with what they've actually not believed all along. Uh, I've got a question for you on that. Has any or has your research or has any research from anyone's legitimate work ever shown that uh, our churches were previously populated with people who never had any real Christian belief, and those are the people who have now left? Yeah, I mean, I'm a scientist, uh, not a church person. Uh, I mean, I go to church, but it's not my it's it's not my role here. The hat that I wear here is as as a social scientist, and so I would I would challenge anybody who wants to make a claim like that to show me the data, mm. um, and I don't think it's there. And and it's it's not that I don't think it's there because I fundamentally disagree with that viewpoint. It's that I don't think it's there because nobody's ever asked or tracked mm-hmm. it really in a in a significant way. If you want to interpret these data in a good riddance sort of way, the Christian in me would say that that's um, probably not a great approach and the scientist in me would pro- would say that it's definitely not a great approach uh are there going to be people that are are, are some people switching uh, you know when, when they fill out the survey are they saying none now instead of identifying with a particular faith just because it's more socially acceptable maybe but it's it's not like if, if it were such a huge trend believe me sociologists and other social scientists would have been out there making you know waves about this for a long time sociologists have been all over the phenomenon the growing number of the nuns with Christian Smith and others. Um, the and, and now, you know, myself and others are starting to explore the nuns. It's, I don't want to say that we get it right all the time, but if, it, if this were that big of a deal, somebody would have been paying attention to it. it I, don't see any of the, I don't see any evidence that suggests that there's, that either that, that that was ever the case, that there was just a whole bunch of people saying, and sure, we're all going to be able to come up with individual stories that, oh, my grandfather would say he was a Christian but never went to church and didn't really believe in God, but he just did it because it was easy. We can all come up with individual anecdotes about that. But in terms of a societal-wide trend, I find it just lacking credibility. You know, I've heard from, and I'd be curious to hear what you've heard from people who are duns, people who have left the church but have not left their faith, who are insulted yeah. when they are assigned this term that, you well, you must be a nominal Christian if yeah. you've walked away from the institutional church. <laughs> what have you heard from them? It is. I think it is insulting. I mean, and it's— um, you know, the, I would say over the last, I've been talking about this book now for about a year. I mean, I wrapped up writing it maybe about a year ago at this time. It came out in the summer of 2015. So in that last year, the most common email that I've received ha, uh, has been from Dunn saying, thank you for making me not feel alone. Thank you for letting me know that I'm not crazy. Um, and part of that was putting them in touch with this community because they had felt so marginalized by the people who were still inside of the church making these claims about nominal Christian. They said, you know, they would write me and say things like, um, I know that I'm closer to God now than I ever was in church. And, and I know that I'm able to live out my faith in a more authentic way now. Um, but it's really difficult to express that to people who think that anytime you turn away from the church, you're autom- there's automatically something wrong with you. And in some cases, there's sadness there. Um, and in some cases, it's anger, which I take it as what you've heard, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, uh, when you think generally about the response you have gotten to the book, what has surprised you about what you've heard? I've been—I um, um, did not expect to get 
such uh, a warm, I don't, I don't want to mean warm as in like um, happy, but uh, it's such an open reception from church professionals, hmm. from clergy, from, you know, youth directors, from uh, uh, community life pastors, as you know, everybody, I, I, some people have been dismissive, um, but a lot more people have been willing to engage us with an open mind. And I think it's because the data resonates with that, something that they can't hmm. argue with. Um, it's not, uh, it's not my opinion. I mean, somebody wrote, somebody, uh, you know, I, I, I logged into Amazon the other day to buy something for my house and, um, and my book was, had, you know, popped up because mm. it was, it was on, you know, whatever, whatever Amazon does to track the kinds of things that you're looking at. And there's this review that somebody had written saying, um, I don't, uh, I, I've seen some of this stuff, but I don't agree with the Dunn's reasons for leaving. And so they gave the book like two stars or something. I'm like, mm. it's not, how, I get, <laughs> like, I don't care if you don't like me, right? But when you argue with the data, I get super frustrated. Um, the, the, the pastors and church professionals can't, uh, generally speaking, don't argue with it because they've seen it. So it's, they, they understand what I'm saying from a scientific approach at, because it resonates with what they are experiencing on a day-to-day level. Um, and so that has been really surprising mm. to see. I, I expected a lot more pushback. I expected a lot more sort of resistance um and i'm sure it's out there and thankfully those people are just not talking to me (laughs) i don't don't need that kind of negativity Mm. in my life um but the but i have had lots of lots and lots and lots of opportunities to talk with um church workers church professionals and have been just reminded again of how dedicated they are and and um how willing they are to do whatever it is that needs to be done you know but that's what's so helpful and groundbreaking, I think, about your research, because you've actually gone out and found out the real reasons that uh, the actual people are are listing for why they've left. I think everybody has an opinion. You know, sure. I've run into so many people who said, well, I'll tell you the real reason people are, are leaving. And everybody has an opinion. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And people can have their, their impressions. But uh, what's helpful, what's useful is uh, you've actually found out the real reasons. Yeah, well, we hope so. <laughs> but but it's got to be frustrating for you when you <laughs> continually run into people who say, no, 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 it doesn't matter what they say or or their real reasons. I'll tell you the real reason. Right. And I can, I'm fine. You know, if people want to challenge me on the interpretation of the data, that's that's perfectly valid. I'm I'm totally okay with that. We really, I I really try to stay in my lane. You know, I mean, it started for me as an academic project. Um, the with a student of mine, <clears throat> and it sort of blossomed into something that was bigger than we ever thought it was going to be. And I'm still really careful. I was doing a workshop, as, as you know, I was doing a workshop in Loveland just last week, uh, speaking at a conference, and um, not Loveland, Longmont, down, just down the street. And and I told them, I said, look, we're, I'm going to talk. We're going to go through this. We're going to work our way through this for the next 45 minutes. And then I'm basically going to be out of things to say mm-hmm. because the work then begins at that point. I, I'm not equipped in any position at all to tell people what to do with their ministries. Um I think I, I think I have a really good handle on the data uh, on this trend, what's going on, the profile of it, and what it looks like, and why it's happening. But in terms of uh, you know, that's only the foundation for really mm-hmm. deciding like what kinds of strategies are we going to put into place if this is something we decide that we care about. Well, and, and I think where you're coming from gives you such credibility and gives uh, your book such credibility, knowing that uh, you're coming at it from a social scientist point of view. You don't have an axe to grind. Uh, and uh, being not only uh, a scientist, you're also an active church guy. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're not here to 
to blow up or to undermine the church. <laughs> no, um, it's uh, it's it's certainly it's it's weird sort of trying to thread that needle between um, not being here to 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 undermine or blow up the church and also not being here as a, as a toolkit either um, because I feel like either of those would be sort of dishonest to my position. Um, and I understand, I mean, the, that is the thing that people ask me for is like, so what can we do about mm-hmm. this? And I say, well, you know, at the end of the book and in, in, I think it's chapter six or seven, we st- start talking about some of the things that um, other organizations have done to combat these same issues. Uh, because again, this is not a church problem. This is an issue that's happening across the board. Um, but I'm not. I'm not going to be the one that's going to write mm. a, you know, a 15 page, I mean, a, a, a 15 chapter like here's what your 15 step plan. Excuse mm-hmm. me, in a book of like mm-hmm. here's what you do on the first week, and then here's what you do on the at the end of the 15th week, and then, boom, your church grows and doubles by number. I, that's not my thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, return to the Duns. What's happening with them? As as you've talked with them and studied them. How are they nurturing or expressing their faith now? Yeah, I think that's a million dollar question. The um, there's a real opportunity here for for the church in this country. It's the uh, the history of the church in America says leads me to believe that somebody's going to come along with an innovation that will help reach this group of people, coalesce them to the extent that they want to be, you know, coalesced um, or resourced or whatever. Um, because we've, we have a long history of innovation in the religious field in America, and I have no reason to believe that won't happen now. But right now, I mean, it's, it's sort of at the precipice. I mean, they, this could go either way. Lots of, duns, um, lots of duns are leaving church and not able to find a community. Um, online helps a little bit, but that's, you know, online is only a supplement to real community. It is not um, typically a replacement for that, and people still very much want that. But they're having trouble finding it. I mean, coining the term, writing the book is giving some voice and profile to this, but it's, you know, it's still one book. It's not like it's reaching every single person in the nation. There's there's not anything that's yet formed into like a movement um, along these lines. So they're, they're out there. They exist. They would like to be connected to each other for sure. Um, but they, they often feel alone and marginalized um, and are sort of seeking out opportunities that fit that profile so they're you know really into podcasts and books and they're online and um chat rooms and things like that but um when it comes to getting together for the purpose of being religious together that's the part that is still missing they're doing lots of other things in their communities where they're living out that you know where they say to me oh i'm living out my calling now by being more involved in my local community uh, by being more involved in my neighborhood i mean this is a these are people are incredible and care i care a lot about their neighborhoods and their local places but there is something that they miss, and I think that's important um, about coming together as a faith community that that isn't happening right now. Hmm. You've used the term refugee. Mm-hmm. Of course, the book is called Church Refugees. Uh, what does that say about uh, how they are feeling toward the church that they left? Are they angry? Are they? Uh, do they feel uh, abandoned? What is their feeling? Yeah, it's a that term came about because uh, the metaphor fit for me because we we live in in Greeley where uh, my wife and I live in Greeley where we have a lot of refugees from a lot of different countries and have I've had the opportunity to interact with many of with many of them for a variety of reasons and understanding how they're working so hard to craft you know a place for themselves with elements of their old culture in this in completely new and foreign land. Um, 
knowing, I mean, of course, if all things were equal, they never would have left in the first place. I mean, refugees are not people that want to, to leave their homeland. Um, and maybe if things calmed down back home, they would go back home. But mostly, I mean, you know, they're not trying to get back home. It's not like they're just, you know, sitting there mm -hmm. watching the clock until finally they can return. They've they started a new life um, and they've they've made a new culture that takes elements of all these other cultures that that allows them to retain their identity um, while also sort of thriving and surviving in this new and foreign land. And I think that that's really the, the metaphor fits so well for me. Obviously, church refugees are not facing the same kinds of, you know, hardships and real threat to life and mm -hmm. happiness that um, actual refugees face. But the metaphor works because. This is, they're taking, you know, the church refugees are picking up a lot of these practices, their entire belief system, and they're really just trying to untether them from the institution and see, okay, like what, what, you know, what helps me to swim out here? Um, and, and what is actually useful from, from all of that um, residue that I picked up in the institutional church? Uh, some of that serves me really well outside. Some of it weighs me down. Um, but they see it as a, as a, um, you know, they're, they they use words to, in terms like spiritual survival, mm -hmm. so they'll cut loose anything that's dragging them down. Mm -hmm. um, if that's a if that is a particular belief that is getting in the way of their ability to connect with other people, um, that belief just becomes unimportant um, or diminished. If it's a set of practices that requires that they, you know, can't be in some spaces like you know, if they one of the things that people talked about was not. Um, when they were in the institutional church, you know, some of them had restrictions against drinking. Um, and so that meant that they couldn't go to their neighborhood bars. They couldn't hang out with their friends at barbecues. They couldn't, you know, really sit down and, and converse with people at a block party. And so they said, forget it. I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> that belief is getting in the way of me mm. doing the thing that God wants me to do. So um, it doesn't mean they're, you know, out getting drunk and partying every single mm. night, but they stopped caring so much about those little, what they, what they would call nitpicky mm. kinds of things that got in the way of the bigger mission. What were the leading reasons that you heard that they left? The well, in the book, we we paint them as as tensions, right? That um, judgment, uh, judge. They're not opposites. So, like one of the things we talk about is judgment and community. The judgment is not the opposite of community, but there it's a it's a tension in the sense that you can't have community if there's also a, a spirit of judgment that's happening inside of your congregation. It means that you can't be your full self, and if you can't be your full authentic self, then you can't really have community. That doesn't work. Um, and that was probably the biggest single reason is that, um, I mean, we, we document some of the others about this very narrow focus on, or this focus on a very narrow morality, um, that excludes lots of other things where there is common ground. Um, that was a big part of it. Uh, they got stuck in this bureaucracy and so they couldn't really do anything that they felt like was important. Instead, they were picking out carpet, um, raising funds to build a parking lot. Uh, but it was this community thing that is sort of the thread that runs throughout, mm -hmm. which is. I mean, people is as connected as we all are now, um, and as as sophisticated as technology has become, it it still is it's a sore replacement. It's a it's a poor replacement rather for sitting down and actually chatting with someone, mm. um, and, and being vulnerable and accountable to those people, and and having that expectation that you will hold other people accountable, and not being anonymous. Um, that's one of the key things that people are looking mm. for. From what you've seen and what you've researched and what you've observed, are these duns coming back to the institutional church? N no, not in the, and, and if I'm, you can sort of sense the hesitation in my voice. They're not coming back to the way that the church looks right now. Um, 
the what is unknown to everybody is what the church might evolve into. Um, they use this word partnering a lot to say, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of antagonistic feeling here. Um, there is in some cases, but most people have just it's it's almost worse. It's it's not they dislike the church and want to reform it. That those days had passed. That was how they felt when they were in the church. It's just that they find the church to be ineffective, hmm. um, and so they sort of. <laughs> They nothing the church, you know. They they don't love it or dislike it. They just nothing it. Um, and and if the church could and and does evolve into a place where it's reaching out to and connecting and supporting and doing the work that the Duns want to see done or to see happen, then I think there's every reason to believe that the Duns will come alongside that partnership and and. Um, be happy to, to work together. Mm. But are they coming back to, uh, I think you, you might've written this to, um, to plop, pray and pay. Mm. That's not, they don't want any part of that. Mm. Um, it's, and that's not to say that they don't want to listen to sermons. They do. And it's not to say that they don't pray. They do. In fact, they pray more than the people who are in the church, which mm. is one of the surprising things from our findings. Um, and it's not to say that they won't support, you know, efforts financially because they'll do that too. Um, but I think that there's some real concern on their side and disillusionment mm-hmm. about the ability of one institution to organize all of that activity internally. So it may not be too fruitful for church leaders to try to lure the guns <laughs> yeah. back with any kind of... Well, and they've or... seen it. I mean, you know, like you've heard these stories too, I'm sure, but like it doesn't work because for so long... The Duns were the ones in the churches, as I alluded to earlier, who were super active. So they were the ones doing these things. Mm. Ashley calls them, she coined this term in the book called shadow missions, where you invite somebody over for dinner, you know, with the ultimate goal of like becoming mm-hmm. their friend, infiltrating their lives and then inviting them to your church. <laughs> um, the They were the ones doing that. So they can see, they see through all of mm. those things. Um, for them, it would, if you want to invite someone to dinner and become a part of their lives, it would just stop there. Mm. Um that's, that has to be the whole agenda. If there's anything more than that, they're, they're going to they're gonna sniff it out and they're not interested. Hmm. You've talked to a lot of clergy, yeah. uh, I think, uh, leading up to and including in the research, but also after the research came out. Yeah. What are you hearing from them? Well, I mean, it launched a second project that we're working on now called Stuck about pastors, the clergy who wish that they could transition into a different job but don't feel like they have the skills or they have too much debt. Um, which is this, or for a variety of other reasons, commitments that they've made to God and to their congregations and things. So they stick it out. Um, so it's, le- it's, 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 it, what has emerged is this picture for, for me, and I might be, you know, one of the only people because we're still in the middle of collecting that data. Um, and it's a new co-author. It's, it's a, a I'm working with a colleague named Todd Ferguson, um, so I might be one of the only people who's able to fully understand this from a data perspective, just because I have the data, not because I'm so you know brilliant, is that we, on the one hand we've got this set of clergy, lots and lots of clergy who find themselves doing things that they don't really want to do, just to keep the the engine running, the institution going for as long as it can. It's not the reason they got into seminary. It's not what wakes them up in the morning. Um, it's not where they find fulfillment. Uh, and we've got a bunch of duns walking out because they don't like the things that the clergy are doing, keeping mm. the institution going. So in some, like that's, that actually gives me hope because I, it, it's not the case in, uh, from my estimation that there's like all the insiders feel one way and all the outsiders feel another mm. way. And if that, if that were the case, I would, I would be really pessimistic about the chances of, um, any sort of a spiritual sort of revolution or for the chances for innovation or those things. But instead what we've got is a sizable number of insiders who also don't like the system Hmm. um, and a sizable number of outsiders who 
don't like the system. There is common ground there. Um, that means that there's there's bound to be something that emerges that makes both of those groups of people happy. Well, if you've got the insiders, particularly the leaders, the pastors, who don't like the system that they're caught up in, what are you hearing from them in terms of, of why aren't they fixing it? Aren't they most empowered to be able to fix it? <laughs> sort of. Um, I mean, it's it's still really early for us with that, uh, with those data. And a lot of, I mean, and plus there's lots of anecdotal stuff that has come out as I've, as I've traveled around. Um, but it's it seems to be this, this sort of feeling that um, you're sold one version of your professional life in seminary or as in the lead up to seminary. Um, and the reality of your professional life when you become a, a pastor is often so different. Um, you're, you're not doing as much of that relationship. You're not doing the discipling, um, the training, the equipping, the things that you really cared about. And it's not that you're not – everybody knows that they're not going to get to do that exclusively, right? There's All of us have parts of our jobs that we don't mm-hmm. like. Um, the It's that they find themselves not doing it at all. And, and the reason for that can – I mean, it's a whole host of reasons. Congregations are in significant financial constraints. Um, uh, there's debt often from seminary. There's kids in college that you, you've, you've, it takes you maybe five or 10, 15 years to find out like, oh, this is not what I wanted to do. By that time, you know, maybe you've moved your spouse across the country and um, you're trying to save for college. And, and then there's this whole other side of it, which is you just literally don't know what else you're equipped to do. How does your resume translate? I mean, I can see that connection because I understand that, you know, the executive pastor of a church of even 200, 250 people is a manager, has to deal with budgets, long range planning Mm -hmm. and uh, all that kind of stuff. But they often can't see that um, and don't know how they would make other potential employers see that at anywhere near the pay that they've been able to make so far. Um, So there's a lot of frustration there. Hmm. and, and, and a lot of churches with declining memberships that are, that are, you know, really just trying all they can do to keep their doors open. And pastors feel, you know, there, there's, it's, you know, it's not like leaving another, it's not like leaving another field in the sense that nobody's worried about their eternal soul when they switch from uh, managing a Home Depot to, uh, I don't know, running a car wash or something or being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. But if you feel called by God to be a pastor, and if and if you've answered those questions to get into seminary mm-hmm. and then to get a for, to get a to get an actual call and a job as a pastor, there is that reckoning. Like you have to be able to come to terms with this idea that either the call that you had wasn't right, um, or that it's changed, um, or that just something isn't adding up. And I think that part of that complicates the process a lot. Hmm. Well, when you talk about that. It's got big implications for the future, I think. When you think about uh, all of these trends that you've been studying over the past couple of years, what do they tell you about the the future of the church, especially in America? And how soon will whatever is coming, uh, how how soon should we expect some bigger ramifications? Right. That's a good question. Um, Well, it tells me, it reaffirms what um, I think I was privileged enough to understand growing up, which is I, I had really great youth directors. I had really great pastors in my life, um, uh, both in my home congregation when I was in middle school and high school. And then um, when I went to college and had a campus pastor who was really important, ended up marrying me and my wife. Hmm. Uh, the Is that there's the church, for whatever reason, um, manages to have uh, this incredible access to really committed, um, well-intentioned people. The, that is the single hardest resource to put fingers on. The, the church not only finds these people, attracts them in many cases, but also does a better job of developing them than almost any other organization I can think of. 
And so that gives me a lot of hope. Um, the, the issues that it faces are structural. Um, now that is a hard needle to move, but you can do it with people who really want it, you know, with people who are individually very committed, as long as those individuals are able to find each other and connect with each other. So I, we've seen revolutions like this take place in the past. I mean, the last major church innovation in this country was a response to social conditions as America suburbanized in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Um, it called for a new kind of church and a new way of doing church. And out of that grew, you know, was born the mega church really. Um, and I'm, I mean, suburbanized in, <clears throat> in all of those ways. It came with more, you know, um, mobility with more individualism, um, with obviously people, uh, living in less densely populated neighborhoods. And so the mega church is a great expression to capture all of those things. Before that we had, um, you know, revival movements and we had, um, great awakenings and all kinds of things. Something like that will happen, and those were all in response to social conditions. Mm-hmm. These current, the current set of social conditions of people turning away from traditional institutions to organize their lives will also result in some sort of innovation. I don't think it's going to be long. I mean, I think you know part of what's needed is um, people to give a name and a face to um, to this movement. I think the you know coining the term the Duns here is is probably a good step in that direction. Um, but then we're going to need to find, I mean, the next, we're going to really need to find what these communities of people are doing when they leave. What do they want to do? I mean, it calls maybe for more research, but mm. there's, I know there's really smart people who are working on it already. I hear from them every single week. Mm. Um, they're really trying to figure this out. Something is changing yeah. out there and it's, it's changing rapidly and it's, uh, it's moving towards something. I, I got to believe that God is in this and is moving us towards something uh, new and fresh and exciting in the future. We just have to figure out uh, how to get uh, on on his bandwagon <laughs> and see what that is. So for me, anyway, I'm, I'm hopeful. When well, I and you've forward. seen it a lot, even at group. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you all have been doing last, besides this book, has been geared in that direction, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Josh. Thank you for uh, all the work that uh, you continue to do in this area. You are a a unique voice and and a voice that uh, is really needed to get in and find out what's really going on to give all of us uh, some good handles that we can latch on to to be able to help navigate this uh, rapidly changing landscape that we find ourselves in. So thank thank you. you. Thank you for saying that. I'm excited to see what comes out of this. Your book, Church Refugees, and uh, also the study that uh, you uh, shepherded through uh, the Social Research Lab. The study is called uh, Exodus of the Religious Nuns. Both of those uh, resources are available from group.com or from Amazon. So uh, we'll look forward to uh, continuing to spread the word. Sounds great.